If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be looking at slaves and masters. Maybe a topic some of you are thinking, oh, well, this is one of those that doesn't apply to me. You know me better than that. I'll squeeze something out of here. Most of you work, most of you have jobs, and some of you are employers, the rest of us are employees. Some of you are retired, and now you work for your wife, (laughs) fixing things around the house. Or you remember back to when you did go to a place and work in an office or whatever, And when you look back, when you think back, either now or in the past, if you're retired, uh, were you a good worker? Did you give glory to God in the way that you work or are working? When people look at your life, do they see you as, as an employee who is giving glory and honor to God? Most people work... Only to buy things and indulge their flesh. That's kind of the world's way of doing it. Most people despise their jobs. They don't like their boss. They don't like their co-workers. They just go to the factory and, you know, put bottle caps on all day so they can get paid, so they can buy things and have fun, so they can work more and buy things and have fun. But is that how Christians are to look at work? Is that how we as believers in Jesus Christ are to think of our jobs as just the necessary evil? And then you're reading your Bible one morning and you come across the verse like Ecclesiastes 5.18 that says, Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat to drink and enjoy oneself and all one's labor labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. As you're reading through the book, you'll see in Ecclesiastes 2.24 and 3.12 and 3.13 and 3.22 and 8.15 and 9.7 repeated phrases that our jobs, our labor, our toil is the gift of God, is the reward of life. And we are to enjoy it. Is your labor, your job, your toil under the sun a reward to you or a curse? Do you enjoy it or despise it? The church today, and I would say especially the younger generation, needs to have a good biblical theology of work. Of what it means to be a good employee. Of what it means to be a good employer. And the text before us this morning is about slaves and masters. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, what does this have to do with me being a good employee or employer? What does this text have to do with me working hard? Or what does this text have to do at all because I'm not a slave or a master? Well, usually when we think of masters and slaves, we think of something very evil. 
very wicked. You know, we think of the, the series Roots. We think of the early years of our country where ships went to Africa and captured people and threw them into the hole of ships and cages, very crude, and half of them died on the way over here and then they were turned into slaves and beaten and treated so brutally you can't even say the unspeakable things that were done to them in church. And it is a sad legacy of our country and a bad chapter in our nation's history. Yet some masters, even then, were very kind to their slaves. And many loved their slaves as their own family and treated them with kindness and respect. But the idea of owning another person, owning, you know, I own you, you are my property, is something that in America and the Western mindset is just, it's inconceivable. That anybody could stoop that low to actually think it would be okay to own someone else. It is just a concept that is just evil in our minds. Especially in a country where we believe in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Where we get to go our own way, say our own thing, be our own self-made man or woman. And if you read through the scriptures, you would basically be able to categorize slavery into two groups. Kind of a biblical slavery, that is, slavery which... Both the master and slave submit to the word of God and unbiblical or worldly slavery where both master and slave do not submit to the word of God. And while both have their similarities, both are very different. And you might be amazed to know that the Bible does not condemn slavery. And we think about that and we're thinking, whoa, 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 wait a second, Jack. Isn't it true that the influence of Christianity in Rome and throughout the world has been the number one reason for the decline of slavery and its abolition? Yes, this is true. As Christians infiltrated society, they would do the more gracious thing. But why is it that the Bible never just comes out and condemns slavery? Well, there are marriages in America and around the world where husbands yell, scream, beat their wives and children. Will we condemn all marriage because of those who disobeyed the word of God? If both husband and wife submit to the word of God, God says marriage can be an incredible blessing. Now, the Bible, in its 66 books, has ample opportunity to condemn slavery. As far back as Genesis 12, we see Abraham who has slaves and he receives slaves as property from Pharaoh. And then in Genesis 17, just nonchalantly, the word of God says, and Abraham, I want you to know that uh, if you have a slave given to you or if one of your slaves gives birth then make sure that all the males are circumcised and there's no condemnation. 
None. God regulates slavery, but he does not condemn it. And most people do not realize this, but biblical slavery was in many instances a form of charity and mercy. All we have is this evil prototype in our mind. Oftentimes Israel went to war with other people, didn't they? There were nations who were very pagan. They were God-hating, idol-worshipping. And in some instances, God says, destroy them all and destroy everything. Everything was called under the ban and everything was wiped out, destroyed, burnt with fire, and there was nothing left. But in a few instances, God says, you can keep some of the people and make them your slaves. Texts like Numbers 31 and Deuteronomy 20 where being preserved from death was an act of God's mercy. We often come to the Bible with the false presupposition that we deserve fair treatment. Well, who says? I mean, if you want what's fair, you want the lake of fire. Because that's what's fair. We falsely presume that we deserve to live, that we deserve to have fair treatment, that we deserve to have life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. But that's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God says that all men are sinners and the wages of sin is death. And that the consequences of sin is eternal life in the lake of fire. That's what the Word of God says all men deserve. That is the fair treatment of a holy and just God. And anything better than the lake of fire is the grace of God. And in some instances, it's slavery. In other cases, slavery was an act of charity for people who found themselves in poverty. Maybe somebody was so poor that they just couldn't support themselves. So the word of God in texts like Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 15 gave the Israelites an opportunity to go to a countryman and say, I'll be your slave. And for six years, they would work as just kind of a hired hand. And at the end of that time, they were to be set free and given a provision. If they wanted to, voluntarily, they could put their earlobe on the doorpost of the house. They would pierce it through and they would become a slave for life. They would want to become a slave for life. They would like it. And they'd say, you know, this is the best thing. I love my master, the scripture says. I want to serve him. I love love his family. And so I'm going to stay his slave, his servant. It was an act of charity. It was better than starving to death. And in other cases, and this would be, in in our culture, just something you just can hardly even fathom. Somebody would be so poor, maybe a father and a mother, a family of six, they just couldn't, couldn't, couldn't make it. And so the father would be forced to sell one of his children or two or three and actually receive money from them so he could get a start again. And those children would then be in slavery for six years and then freed again on the seventh year, the year of Jubilee. Again, an act of mercy. And where slavery is practiced, then all sorts of other situations come into being. For instance, sometimes slaves are born slaves. You know, slaves have babies and then now they're, they're, they're the possession of their master. And so now their babies are. And so what about them? And some are given as gifts like those given to Abraham. And some are inherited from fathers who had him before you. And we might say, well, why don't you just, just free them all? 
Well, that happened. And if you know our history in our country, um, after slavery was abolished and, and all those people were just let free, many of them starved to death because they, didn't, they couldn't take care of themselves. Now, that's not to excuse those who didn't come and the government who tried to help them. But I'm just saying, don't always think of slavery as an evil because it's not. Now, in the New Testament times, slavery was really common. And historians estimate that there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. 60 million. They were everywhere. It was just common. And that was the context that Jesus and the apostles taught in when they addressed slavery. In the New Testament times, the Jew often treated their slaves like their own children. Some of them even adopted them. The Romans, too, would adopt slaves to be their own sons, firstborn sons, and have all the rights. They would be adopted. And they had much more than the average hired hand. To be a hired hand would be a person with an uncertain future, not knowing when you could work and how much you could work and if you could provide from your family. But being a slave would have consistent income, consistent food, consistent shelter, clothing, protection. It was a good thing in many cases. Now, we can ask ourselves, but why didn't Jesus and the apostles... In the context of Rome, with all that slavery and all the mentions of slavery in the New Testament, just come out and say, it's wicked, it's wrong, it's to be condemned. You see, most of us are so full of pride that we cannot imagine having somebody over us with total authority to tell us what to do all the time. We do not want to submit. We do not want people telling us what to do. We want to do our own thing. We're Americans. Everyone wants to be boss and have control and have other people serve him. And this is why we work, isn't it? People who make a lot of money, what do they do? They hire a lot of people to do things for them. Here, you fix my roof. You take care of my yard. You clean my pool. You make me meals. You serve me. You purchase servants to do work for you. And we may not buy people outright, but we buy their labor and buy their services and buy their skills. I want you to think about that as we approach this text. Is the concept of being a slave a person owned by someone who has complete authority over you evil Most Americans would say, absolutely. Well, I would ask you, are you the kind of person who would say that? Get ready for the ambush. The theme verse of Mark in Mark 10, verses 44 and 45, a common verse, Jesus speaking to his disciples about what it means to be great said this, And whoever wishes to be be first among you shall be the slave of all. Do you want to be first in God's eyes? You have to be the slave of all. Then the verse goes on to say, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
as a slave and to give his right life a ransom for many to purchase them. Paul, when he was speaking of immorality in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20, he gives all these reasons why we need to abstain from sexual immorality. And you remember the last reason he gives? He says, You are not your own, but you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Did you hear that? If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are a slave. We're slaves. So I hope your concept of not wanting to be a slave is now gone. Because if you don't want to be a slave, you are a slave. You're a slave of sin and Satan. If you have tended the winning of the war within class, you have discovered that everyone's a slave. You're either a slave of sin and Satan and don't know it, or you're a slave of Jesus Christ and you do know it. But either way, you're a slave. You are under the authority and control of another person that has dominion over you. Do you remember what Paul said in Titus 2, 11 through 15? We've read this scripture over and over again in our going through Timothy. I love this passage. Now, there's a little part in here that I'm just going to slow down on. I'm going to read the whole context. Just listen to this. Let me remind you of why we were saved. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Then he says, these things speak, exhort, and reprove with all authority and let no one disregard you. If you are a Christian, you have been purchased by the blood of Christ precious and spotless, and you are not your own anymore. God has total dominion over you. Do you remember what Paul told the Ephesian elders? Another text we've gone to over and over again. It's just loaded with goodies. Acts 20, 28, where he, he meets with the Ephesian elders at Miletus, and he tells them, all these different things. And in verse 28, he says this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Bought humans, you who know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Jesus said in John 8, 34, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And in Romans 
6, 6 through 20, it contrasts those who are slaves of sin and Satan between those who are slaves of Christ and righteousness. You're a slave, we're all slaves, and we live as slaves on the earth, whether believers or unbelievers. The Word of God says every one of us is a slave. A Christian is a slave of God and needs to live, he needs to pay rent, He needs to buy clothing. He needs to buy food. He needs to provide for the necessities of his life. And in our culture, your master is God as a Christian, first and foremost. And God, who is your owner, gives you the freedom to go out and find a job or employment any place his providence and his word allows. And so you go out. And when you go to the workplace and you get a boss, you then choose to what? Put yourself under the authority of your employer. Now, it's true, you have the right to quit if you want, but only in a way that brings glory to God. You do not have the right to throw the phone against the wall. And to scream at your boss and say, I quit. Why? Because your owner and master, God, says you must treat your boss with all respect. And that wouldn't be respectful. You are a slave of God, and your master does not give you the right to quit, but only to quit in a way that gives him glory. You can't just quit any way you want. You have to quit in a way that he wants. Now, when you start thinking about things like that, then a text like this becomes a little more applicable, doesn't it? You choose to submit to your employer, you must submit. You do not have the right to tell your employer what to do. You do not have the right to tell your employer what what you want to do and the way you want to do your work. No, he tells you. He is your master. He controls you and you do what he says if you want to be a good employee. Now, some people say, well, you know, I thought we were all one in Christ. Well, we are. In Galatians 3... And verses 26 and 28 talk about us all being one in Christ. And it's true in the context of salvation. We are one in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, but in the context of the offer of the gospel and those who save, salvation is equal. But that does not take into account social distinctives, men's and women's roles, authority structures that God has decreed. For instance, there is a distinction between Israel and the Gentiles made in the scriptures. There are promises distinct to both. There is a distinction between men's and women's roles in both the church and the home. There is a distinction between those who are in authority and those who are under authority, like the governing authorities. And your God, your owner, your master, commands you to work 
and to be either an employee or employer in such a way that it lines up with the Word of God and gives Him glory. And that's what this text is about. You may not be the same kind of person under authority like the slaves in the New Testament time, but if you are an employee or employer, if you are a Christian or a non-Christian, you are under authority. And these principles apply to you. So, having said that, let's look at 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. And there are some great things in this text that we need to find out. Follow along as I read. Now, I just want you to know that if they were really smart when they did this passage, what they would have done is they would have taken Timothy chapter 5 and extended it two verses and started chapter 6 and verse 3, but they didn't. And so we just have to forgive him for for that. But he's talking about three different groups. He's talking about widows already. Then he's talking about how to care for elders already. And now he's talking about slaves and and masters and 6, 1, and 2. Mostly just slaves and their relationship to their masters. But look there and follow along as I read these two verses. Paul says, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. Now, from this text, you should be able to extract three obligations you, um, as Christians, and especially the church as a whole, must take as those under authority and apply to their life. Let's see what they are. The first one is found in verse 1, and it's directed at those who are under the yoke. Look at verse 1. We have a subject, a command, and a dual reason for the command. What is the subject? All who are under the yoke as slaves. So what does it mean, under the yoke? Well, literally, the yoke was that big chunk of wood that had a couple curvy things in it that they would put on the the necks of oxen so that they could harness uh, gear to them so that the oxen could pull a plow or pull a cart or whatever. That is the literal meaning. But in the Bible, it's hardly ever used in a literal way. It's almost always used in a figurative way. It's, used, it's usually used in the Bible as some sort of bondage or oppression or control. But in every case, it talks about someone being over another person. Like in, in Israel, it's used in, in the prophets of uh, Israel's enemies you know, being, being over them. They were under the yoke of these oppressors. Remember, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, my burden upon you. And so that's kind of how it's used here. It's used in the figurative sense. But here Paul is just merely saying, those who are under the authority of another as slaves. That's what he's saying. Those who are under the yoke as slaves. That is, they are under coercion to work for another person who owns them. Now, the word slave is the common word doulos. Oftentimes it's translated slave or bond slave or bond servant or sometimes servant. And notice what Paul says a slave must do in verse 1. 
they are to regard their own masters as worthy of some honor. No, all honor. Now here he's talking about unbelieving masters. He's going to get to believers in verse 2. Now he's talking about unbelieving masters and he's contrasting these two. And what's interesting is the normal term for, for master or Lord in the New Testament is kurios. And that's the common one. Here he uses a very specific term um, to describe one who is in total authority over another person. It's despot test. The word we get despot from. Now, the English word has, you know, the ideas of these harsh, you know, mean, cruel rulers. But in the Greek, it just talks about one who has total control and authority. And in fact, Christ in 2 Timothy and Jude is spoken of as the master of Christians. And we know he loves us, but he has total control over us. As a Christian, you have one boss, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You may have earthly bosses, but in reality, this one is the one you really work for. He is the one who calls the shots in your life. You are no longer your own. You have been purchased. I want you to turn to Colossians 3, and I want to take you through a few verses here to just see this concept of of you and you being under the authority of another person and what God expects of those who are under the authority of another person. Look at Colossians 3.22. Notice what it says, verse 22. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Now, did you see there what was happening? There was this acknowledgement that we have earthly masters, but the focus is on what master? Jesus Christ, the heavenly master. It says... That we are to serve the earthly masters with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. That you are to, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord. And you are to know that the Lord is the one you should look for for a reward, not your earthly master. And then he just comes right out and says it at the end of verse 24. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. He just says it. Now, just a verse like that should radically change the Christian's work ethic. You know, so often you can be one of those people who has, you know, a pencil and a clipboard, and we used to call them wall sliders. I remember I worked at a place where we hired this guy, and and he didn't know it, but they, they gave everybody a number, and whenever there was a sale, they would enter in a computer, and the computer would print out the sales 
of these people and he didn't know that and so he had a number and he had a clipboard and he was running around for like three days just busy back and forth in the warehouse you know just man that guy's going for it well at the end of three days he hadn't sold a thing he was hiding the whole time and so they had to let him go he wasn't working and some people work harder at not working than they would just work Some people, their day goes by so slowly because they work so hard at not working. And if they just got into their work and worked really hard, it'd be gone like that. I mean, one of the things that bothers me is I get to the office and I think, oh, man, I've got so many good things to study. And pretty soon it's 5.30 and my wife's calling me up. Come home now. It just goes by. You work hard and time just flies by. You work slothfully and it just drags on. But as Christians, we need to see what God is saying here. We need to obey our our masters, those who are over us in authority, and work for them heartily. And all while we're working, we're working going, I'm doing this for you, Jesus. I'm doing this for you, Lord. I know you're watching me right now, and I'm going to give you glory by the way I'm working for this unbelieving master of mine. Now go back to 1 Timothy 6. Look at verse 1 again. Jesus, your heavenly master, tells you to regard your earthly masters as worthy of all honor. And we've seen this word honor because it appears over and over in the text. Sometimes it means just to treat with respect, an attitude of respect and reverence. Other times it means to treat with an attitude of respect and reverence and to give financial support. Here it's talking about the first one, an attitude of respect and reverence. You know, you wouldn't expect slaves to be paying their masters except with their labor. But he says, honor them. Honor them. Now, some people would think, Jack, this is hard to do. I mean, you don't know my boss. Well, we need to remember that this isn't just something isolated to masters. Remember what Romans 12.1 says, um, or 12, I think it's 12.12, what is it? To give preference to one another in honor. And in 1 Peter... No, what is it? Uh, 2.17 talks about we are to give honor to everyone. The Christian is to give honor to everyone, not just their boss, but now that he's addressing it, make sure you give honor to your boss, to your master, to those who are over you. When you go to work, do you honor your employee? Do you honor your employer? Do you treat them with kindness? Do you treat them with respect? Do you treat them in a way that would give glory to God? That's what this is after. God gives you a dual reason to honor those in authority over you. Look at verse 1. First, so that the name of God will not be spoken against. And second, that our doctrine will not be spoken against. Now, the name of God is a Hebrew idiom which means everything God is. Now, this is, this is really heavy. He says, make sure you give your unbelieving master all honor so that everything that God is will not be spoken against and that our doctrine, well, you can take our out of there and just put the, because it has the definite article and it should be translated so that the doctrine will not be spoken against. What doctrine? The doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the apostles, the doctrine in the word of God. Now listen to this. 
If you are not a good employee, you can cause God and everything he is and God's word and everything it says to be spoken against. You're giving rocks to the rock throwers. Now, what's really interesting is if you have the NASB, it says spoken against, not big enough, not bad enough word. The word is blasphemo, the normally translated word for blaspheme. That is radical, isn't it? To think that when you're in your little Dilbert cubicle and, you know, you're doing your data entry or whatever you do in that thing, shoot rubber bands over the top and ricochet them off the ceiling. I know you never did that. That you are either giving your employer and maybe those around you the opportunity to blaspheme everything God is and everything God has taught in his word or you're giving them reason to glorify God and accept everything God is and everything God teaches in his word. Do you remember what Paul said to the, the moral Jews when he, in uh, Romans 2.24 when he's talking about, you know, you, these people are sinners and you Jews who think that you're keeping the law even though you're breaking the law. Do you remember he quotes Isaiah 52.5 and he says what? The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, when the Jews who were holding to this really pious standard, supposedly, were not holding to that standard and keeping that standard, the Gentiles saw their hypocrisy and then they were heaping reproach upon the very person of God and the word of God. And that's what happens when you and I do not work as God tells us to work and are not the employees and employers that God asks us to be. In the same way as a Christian employee in the workplace can be a great witness for God, so he can be a great deficit to Christianity by his behavior. The way you work either gives glory to God or gives an occasion for blaspheming it. Turn over to Titus chapter 2. Titus 2. I want to show you something here. This is There's some great, great verses. There's too many even to go to. But Titus 2, verses 9 and 10. Now this is right before the text that we read just a little bit ago. But look at verse 9. Now Paul, when he's addressing slaves and masters in our text in chapter 6, 1 and 2, kind of comes at it in a negative way to say, don't do this or this bad thing will happen. But when he writes to Titus, he comes at it in a positive way and says, do these things so this will happen, this good thing will happen. And notice what he says, starting in verse 9. He says, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Did you see that? By being a 
good employee, by being somebody who is submissive to those who are over you in authority, you are ornamenting, decorating, sprucing and spithing up the doctrine of God. Isn't that great? And of course, the opposite is true. Just like we read, if you don't spruce it up, you tear at it and you blaspheme it by your actions. And some of you are still thinking, but Jack, you don't know where I work. I mean, my, my boss is just, he is the most wicked guy. I mean, I, his lifestyle is so wretched. The words that come out of his mouth are so bad. And you just don't understand. He's just, he's just a heathen. Well, then turn to 1 Peter 2.18. And let's see what the Word of God says to those who have masters like that. 1 Peter 2.18, and and Peter, I love Peter. Peter is a whole book about suffering. If you're suffering, you just camp out in Peter for a while. Peter has a way of dealing with the exceptions, those exceptions you wish he wouldn't deal with. You know, those kind of little things in your life where you think, you know, I could just grow bitter here and happy. And yet Peter comes on and says, Wives, be submissive to your husbands. Yeah, but you don't know my husband, even if any of them are disobedient to the word. Oh. And here he says the same kind of thing. Look at verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable, literally perverse which means they are neither good nor gentle, which means they're bad and harsh. So it applies to them too. What we must remember is that the Bible takes precedence over the law of our country. You know, our government may tell you it's okay to get drunk in the privacy of your home or at a bar as long as you don't drink and drive. But you can't do that because the Word of God says don't get drunk. So our government sometimes when it comes to being an employee allows a lot of things. But who are you going to obey? The government says it's okay to go on strike. It's okay to rebel against your employer. It's okay to treat them with disrespect, to not work, to rebel, to stop, to not do it heartily as unto the Lord. But can you do that and be a Christian? No. No, that would be to disobey the clear teaching of many scriptures. I'm surprised at people who say, you mean I can't go on strike? Not unless you want to be Brought up for church discipline. You can't rebel against your authority if you want respectfully remove yourself from that authority. But if you choose to submit to that authority heartily, diligently, with all respect, all honor is what the Word of God says. That's what God requires over and over But not all those in authority over us are unbelievers. Sometimes they're believers. And some of you may be thinking to yourself, 
Yeah, it is so great to have a Christian boss. And others of you are thinking, it's so bad to have a Christian boss. Now, that's why he addresses what he does in verse 2. Look there. Those who have believers as their masters is the subject. Now, you can imagine the difficult situation here. You know, maybe you're in the New Testament times. We'll just go back there and then we'll kind of bring it forward. And you're a slave. You've received Jesus Christ. You're studying under the Apostle Paul. Maybe you live at Ephesus. And during that three years, you are diligently studying with the Apostle Paul. And you grow. And pretty soon, you're an elder of the church at Ephesus. And your master just came to the Lord. Now what? The Bible says, because you are an elder of the church, he is to submit and obey and highly esteem you. And the word of God says to that slave, who is the elder, that he is to submit and obey and highly respect his master who is over him. And you can see where all of a sudden there might be some conflicts because, you know, hey, I'm an elder. And you're just a peewee baby Christian. I'm mature in the Lord. And you aren't. I know lots about the Word of God, and you know a little bit. And so this whole problem of authority structures inside the church... And outside the church became an issue. And that's why Paul is addressing it here. Sure, if you're an elder in the church and that master comes in, sure, there's an authority structure here in the body of Christ, in the local, local congregations. But you go outside, you get into a different authority structure. There's authority structure of government, authority structure of home, authority structure at your workplace. And look again at verse 2 where Paul says that those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them. And that word disrespectful means to think little of or to, um, to look down upon. Do you remember? It's the same word that uh, Paul used of Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12. Do you remember when he says, let no one look down on your youthfulness? Remember when he said that? Well, that is the same word. It means to think little of or despise or to act in the way like somebody is less than you. So he says, whatever you do, you who have believers as masters, do not look down on them just because they may be immature or whatever. No, you are not to disrespect them. And then he gives a reason. Because they are brethren. Just because you are a Christian working for another Christian doesn't mean you get to just pitch all authority structure and do things your own way and think you should get special treatment and be treated with partiality. No, you must respect them and give them all honor. Paul then contrasts being disrespectful with a strong contrasting word. He says, but, and this one is a very strong one, but, and gives us a second command in verse 2, but must serve them all the more. All the more. So if a, a believer slave is to serve an unbeliever master, like verse 1 says, then a believing slave with a believing master is to do that plus whatever all the more means. 
to the highest degree is what Paul is saying. You're going to be in heaven with this person for eternity. You've got to bless this person by your extra hard labor, your extra faithfulness, your extra punctuality or whatever. And oftentimes when you look at the scriptures, you see this kind of thing. Like Paul said in Galatians 6.10, that we are to do good to all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. Notice everybody we're to do good to, but when it comes to those who are God's own, they're a part of the body of Christ, part of you. You are to treat them with extra special care. And here, with extra special work and labor and respect and honor. By the way you speak, by the way you act, all the more. And then he gives two reasons. Look there. He says, first of all, because those who partake of the benefit, now just stop there for a second. The word benefit might be translated good work or quality work or or excellent labor. He says, those masters who are partaking of the excellent labor you are giving them as a slave or servant into submission to them, and then he lists two things, are believers and beloved. They're believers just like you. They're beloved of God just like you. And so make sure that if you have a boss who is a Christian, get there early, work there late, go the extra mile, treat them with great respect. Why? Because that's what the Word of God says. Do it all the more. You will be spending eternity with these people, and so you need to take every opportunity, Paul says, to serve them all the more, not pull back, not expect special treatment. And what is the church to do about all this? All these principles about submitting to and honoring and working diligently and heartily as unto the Lord when we serve. What is the church to do? Well, at the end of verse 2, Paul gives a double-barreled exhortation primarily to those who teach and preach. And he says, teach and preach these principles. Now, have we ever heard that before in 1 Timothy? I remember hearing something similar in 1 Timothy 1.3, where Paul instructed Timothy to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Oh, in 1 Timothy 4.6, where Paul says, in pointing these things out to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. And in 1 Timothy 4.11, where Paul says, prescribe and teach these things. Oh yeah, in 1 Timothy 4.13, where he says, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. And then again, in 1 Timothy 4.15 and 16, take pains with these things, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, persevere in these things. And again in 5.7, prescribe these things as well. And in 1 Timothy 5.21, maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing from a spirit of partiality. In other words, the whole book, all the way through the book of 1 Timothy, Paul is telling Timothy, a leader of the church, what to teach the people of the church so they know how to conduct themselves, not only in the household of God, but outside the household of God. And so if you are a leader, if you are a teacher, make sure you teach proper principles on working, on submitting to authority, on being honorable and respectable to those who are in authority over you. So what have we learned? Regard our unbelieving masters as worthy of all honor, so God and His word will not be blasphemed. Secondly, 
we are to make sure we don't disrespect those who are over us. That is, we are to respect them because they are believers and they are beloved of God. And third, if you are a leader, teach and preach these principles. Now, in closing, I want to just turn to one last passage, and I've purposely just skirted around it. It's in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. And if there is a passage that you just need to meditate on, if there is a passage which is going to help you in uh, your workplace and how to have that right attitude, this is the passage. And as we read this passage, I want you to just listen to what the Word of God says and compare it to your own heart and your own life and how you yourself are living right now as an employee or an employer in the world. And listen to what the Word of God says. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart. Notice this. As to Christ, not by way of eye service as pleasers, men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now amazed again at your word and what it teaches Father, I just pray that all of us right now would be leaving today understanding that we are all under authority, that somebody is over us. If we know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, if we have repented of our sins and confessed our sins to you, if we have believed in our heart and confess with our mouth that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and rose again on the third day. And if we have committed our lives to follow Him, we have a Master. We have been purchased with the blood of Christ, precious and spotless. And Father, I just pray that we would all live, those of us who know Jesus Christ, knowing that you are watching us, that you are there every moment, that when we're working in our job, either in the office or outside, wherever we go, you're watching us. And you want us to be good employees and employers. You want us to respect authority, to submit to authority. You want us to live like your slaves, knowing that you redeemed us from every lawless deed to be people for your own possessions, zealous for good deeds. And Father, I know there may be some people here who are thinking, boy, this is not me. I'm my own master. I do my own thing. Father, help those people right now to realize that they are not their own master. Satan is their master. 
And if they want to be freed from the bondage of their sin, from Satan and his control, from his deception over them, that they need to repent. They need to repent and turn from their sins and follow after Christ, believing in his person and work. And Father, I pray that you might grant some repentance in that way today and that they might be saved and they might become your slaves like those of us who are your slaves. And Father, I just ask that as we leave here today, we would examine our own hearts, that we would look at our own lives, that we would make any adjustments we need to make in regard to those who are over or under us so that your name and your doctrine will not be blasphemed. We pray this in your name. Amen.